I read comics, show number 58, finally. getting on top of things and then you get sick and it all just goes to hell which is what happened to me so I was really sick for about three weeks and for me in my life when I'm sick because I have a very demanding job and many other things that I need to do I don't get to actually stay home and be sick and kind of get better I basically have to go into work and be sick at work and even when I do stay home I'm still working so it I was sick for a long time. It took me a long time to get better. And I had no voice, so I couldn't even podcast. And on top of it, I couldn't get to go to Silicon because I was really, really sick. And I didn't want to make everyone there sick. So um, I sadly missed Silicon, and I missed seeing my friend Ginger and my friend Molly and the other folks who were there. So I'm very sorry about that. And I haven't really gotten um, a lot of reportage on it. I guess I should go over to the Silicon blog. And I was hoping that they would have had some audio for me to put on the show, um, and maybe that will happen one day, so I have to check. But anyway, I didn't get to go to Silicon. And because the, the, the sick that I was was having an awful cold and then a sinus infection, it wasn't even the kind of sick where when I was at home, I could kind of sit around and like read comic books. I just had to lay there in bed wishing that I was dead. So I didn't get to catch up on anything. So this time around, I just have a couple of things to talk about, but there will be more and better shows forthcoming. So let me tell you about the one really good thing first. So this is a piece of video, which you may have read about because it was blogged in a couple of places, but I want to get into a little more depth in it. It was part of a British TV show on the BBC about comics, and it was a show hosted by Jonathan Ross called In Search of Steve Ditko. So I know who Jonathan Ross is just a little bit because he's a friend of Ricky Gervais, and that's the extent of my knowledge, and I know he's like a TV presenter and stuff. And I I had gotten the impression from seeing him on um, things like extras that he was just kind of goofy, but he was great. This was a really, really good show. And I watched it all the way through. I just rewatched it again because it was so good. And I got to thinking, why don't they make shows like this for American television? This is awesome. This is probably one of the best documentaries about a very specific aspect of comics that I have ever, ever seen. It was not trying to be all-inclusive and talk about the history of comics from the beginning of time until now. It focused on one guy, Steve Ditko, and his work and what a freak he is and talked to a lot of really intelligent people who know about Ditko and some of whom actually know him. And I think that's the way you have to do comics documentaries. It was also a really good balance of people talking plus actual art that you could look at and actually see it so it wasn't just panned over quickly so that you couldn't actually see it. There were long focus shots on panels so you could read the dialogue and they would sometimes move from panel to panel so you could follow the action as it went across the page. And that was great. Um, This documentary was up on YouTube for about five minutes and then I guess the BBC pulled it because of copyright infringement. So I got my copy off the torrents because I don't live in England and I don't know how else I could get it and I really, really, really wanted to see it. And I I may have a solution for you after I get done with the review part of this. So 
this is really the the search for someone who is famously reclusive, um, famously quiet about all of the work that he's done and his personal life and just about everything else about him. And there was lots of stuff in there that I didn't know. I think most people know that Ditko really is most famous for the time that he spent at Marvel, which wasn't all that long co-creating, I put that in quotes, Spider-Man with Stan Lee and then creating Doctor Strange and then at DC creating Hawk and Dove and the Creeper. And then he did a lot of work for independence as well. And this show really focused on the Marvel years and then somewhat on the stuff that he did after that when he was working at Charlton for a while and created more of the totally freaky Ayn Rand characters like Mr. A. So they talked a lot about his background, talked to people who knew him, who were there at the very start, talked to people like Mark Miller and Alan Moore, and they had a lot of great insights into why they're such Ditko fans and what made his work so special at that time, and did some comparisons between the kind of art that he was doing and the kind of art that was being done by the other really important artists of the time, Jack Kirby, and showing examples. So talking about how Ditko's art especially for Spider-Man, tended to be very claustrophobic and very high tension and how he would typically use that nine-panel layout. And then they would show examples of the nine-panel layout and show you examples of the way he would draw characters to look like they were very stressed out or on the verge of a nervous breakdown. So it was a really good job of, of cutting between what people were talking about and then showing you examples of it. It was perfect. They talked to Stan Lee, and I thought this was one of the best Stan Lee interviews that I've seen him do. A lot of times when you see Stan talking... Um, he's just blowing smoke because he can. And you're never quite sure whether he's serious or not. But in this interview, because Jonathan Ross is a very good interviewer, he kind of got past the bluster and the jokes and got Stan to really talk about what Ditko's role was in creating Spider-Man. And it got a little uncomfortable, which I thought was good and probably doesn't happen to Stan often enough. Then he told some stories that I'd never, ever heard about his more recent interactions with Ditko, which I didn't even know had happened. And you can see that Stan Lee is a guy who chooses his words very, very carefully. And I hadn't really appreciated that up to now. Well, he's a writer, so it's not really a surprise. But he, when he says something, he says it very, very deliberately. And I don't want to give away too much, but you can see it in the interview. But that was great. And I was really pleased to finally find out some of the stuff that I had wondered about for a long, long time. They talked with the very few other people who had worked with him talked to people like Neil Gaiman, who's apparently a buddy of Jonathan Moore's, and, um, sorry, Jonathan Ross, and went to different comic book fans, to high-profile fans, to talk about Ditko's influence on everything that happened in comics after that. The one thing they didn't get to in the, the show, which I understand, was the later work that he had done for DC. And I've been reading a little bit of it on Scans Daily, and it's really fucking weird. Um, not at all what I expected, and his art style doesn't look at all like what I thought it would be. So I'm really anxious to find more of the stuff that he had done kind of post-70s, and I know he did a lot for DC. I went to the Wikipedia entry, and I looked up all the things that he's done. So he's got quite a few credits, but um, I, I really would like to see them to see where his art went. Now, interestingly, he's still alive. He lives in New York. He has a studio in New York in this office that's like downtown, Midtown, I guess. And so the whole ending to this, uh, very Citizen Kane-ish, was Jonathan Ross and Neil Gaiman trying to meet him. And I don't want to give that away either. 
but it really is In Search of Steve Ditko. I think for people who are Ditko fans, and I'm certainly a Ditko fan, it was great to, to get all this inside information and see someone take a very intelligent and fanish but not obsessive and, and slavish look at what he's done. Um, for people who don't know his art that well but are just familiar with the characters, it's a wonderful introduction to all the different things that he's done and why he was so influential and why Spider-Man was such an important character in the way that he and Stan Lee portrayed him in those first 40 issues or so. It's also a great chance to see people like Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore and Mark Miller be fanboys and talk about the things that inspired them when they were very young, especially Alan Moore, who's just... A, a wonderful interview whenever you get him. He's very well-spoken and really funny. He tells some great stories. And as a bonus, he does a spoken word version of a song that he did with a band called Mr. A, which I'm going to play right after this little segment so you can hear it, which he says was unashamedly ripped off from the Velvet Underground Sister Ray, the, the melody anyway, and has this great, um, just great lyrics. And he just did this performance, which is really, really wonderful. So it's worth it to see Alan Moore do a performance of a song. Now, I feel so strongly that people should watch this. I've actually uploaded this to a, a secure, undisclosed location. It's zipped, so you can't actually stream it online. You're going to have to download the whole thing, and it's big. It's, you know, more than 300 megs. So if you would like to download this and watch it for your very own, it's, an, it's a QuickTime file. It's an AVI file. It's very high quality. It looks perfect. Send me an email. Send it to Lena Taylor at hotmail.com. Lena Taylor's all one word. Send it to my hotmail address and put Ditko in the subject line, and I will send you the link to the secret file. And you may download it and then look at it. You can find it on the torrents if you are torrent savvy and want to go around looking for it. I've also been looking for Ditko stuff on the torrents, and I found one that was a whole collection of black and white stuff he had done for Warren before he went to Marvel. And it's pretty good, except that like one page out of every five is missing, so it's really hard to follow the flow of the stories, which is really fucking annoying. But anyway, um, if anybody has links to the later Ditko stuff, like the 80s, and, and if he's done anything in the 90s, I would love to see it. And I want to know what the hell he's doing right now. He has an office in New York. What does he need an office for? Uh, you know, is he drawing? Is he writing? What's he doing? Wouldn't it be great if he wrote a book? I'd love to know that. So let me leave you with Alan Moore performing his song, Mr. A. And then if you want to get it, send me an email. I'll let you know where it is. song called Mr. A. Um, it was a, the, the main chorus was a shameless ripoff of Sister Ray by the Velvet Underground. Um, but the verses... I, I thought they were, they were quite memorable. Would you like me to give you oh, a, would we? a performance, Come Jonathan? Come on, let's have a, This is gold. He had one room above a thrift store. He had a trunk of books by Ayn Rand. He was short-sighted and reclusive, resisting pleas to take his photograph. He drew a superhero comic. He saw the world in terms of black and white. He said a day's work for a day's pay. That is our one and only right. He takes a card and shades one half of it in dark so he can demonstrate to you just what he means. He says there's black and there is white and there is wrong and there is right and there is nothing, nothing in between. That's what Mr. A said. Wasn't that fun? I love that. 
Too bad he never released it as like a record. I would have bought that. Maybe they'll be on iTunes one day. Now, the other thing that I actually read that I feel qualified to talk about at this point is Darwin Cook's The New Frontier. So I had read a ton about this. I saw a bunch of scans on Scans Daily, and I thought I would invest. So I bought the two trade paperbacks. I know it's out in, like, one of those uh, absolute editions now for some stupid amount of money, but I wasn't going to pay that. So I just got the two trades. And these were published around 2004 and um, were collected shortly thereafter. And I have never really read anything by Darwin Cook. I know that he's well-respected, has done some great work on The Spirit, which I've seen a little bit of, but I hadn't actually read anything by him. Um, And I certainly didn't know anything about The New Frontier other than seeing the retro covers and thinking that it looked pretty stinking cool. So I read them through, and i got to say, I'm not sure how I feel about this story and these books. Um, I really liked parts of it, but I was really bored by other parts of it. And I don't like that when I feel bored by something. And I'm feeling like I need to go back and read this again and maybe discuss it with someone um, who has read it and maybe knows more about it than I do. Some of the stuff in here, granted, was lost on me. There's a lot of Golden Age stuff that I just don't know, like in-jokes and characters that I'm not really familiar with. And I tried to do a little bit of Wikipedia research to kind of get me to where I needed to be. But I'm sure I'm missing a lot of stuff. Um... Let me just say at the outset, the art is amazing. I love the art. It is beautiful. It is everything comic book art should be. It's stylized. It's colorful. It's action-packed. You can tell what's going on. Um, He has a great sense of storytelling in figuring out what to show you and what not to show you. There are places where um, everything is very compressed, which I like. You know, it's not the Bendis style where you have to take 20 pages of people looking at each other. Um, and sometimes I would have to go back and reread it to figure out what had happened because it was so compressed the first time around that I kind of didn't get it. But that's fine. I like that. I like being challenged in that way. So I love the art. I love the way he's um, reinterpreted a lot of the superheroes and their costumes and the way that they move. It all seems like it fits. I think it all really, really works. The storyline is something else. So here's the thing. There's two books, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Volume 1, to me... Felt like a whole lot of setup. Nothing happens in volume one. It's just getting all the ducks in a row for when the thing happens in book two. So I, I was really left feeling kind of, again, a little bored and a little impatient at the end of book one because I was like, okay, nothing's happened. We got a lot of setup and a lot of introductions to a lot of characters and nothing's happening. And then a lot of stuff happens in book two. So maybe, again, like I said, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I need to go back and reread it and figure out that stuff actually does happen in volume one. I don't know. But that was my initial impression. Also, I had no idea that Hal Jordan was the hero. I didn't know who was going to be the hero because when you look at the front cover of volume one, there's Wonder Woman who's right in front. There's Superman kind of floating up in the air. There's Flash. Um, And there's a bunch of other people that I don't really recognize. And there's Batman kind of lurking in the background. And there's a guy standing behind Wonder Woman. And I didn't know who that was. I thought it was just generic airman. Not realizing that it would turn out to be Hal Jordan. Because he doesn't look... Well, I mean, what does Hal Jordan look like? You know, he's a white guy. (laughs) And they all look the same, right? Um, So I didn't know anything about that. I mean, I guess I could have looked really, really closely at his helmet where it says Jordan. But, you know, I'm not going to scrutinize a cover like that. 
So I kind of thought that, that Wonder Woman and Superman were the two main characters. And yeah, they are important, but it's a Hal Jordan story. And on the second volume, um, there's Superman and there's Green Lantern as number two and Wonder Woman as number three. And it's also the other main character, I would say, is John Jones, the Martian Manhunter. And he's on book two. There he is floating up in the air. And, you know, I don't see him on the cover of book one, do I? I'm looking. I'm looking very carefully. Okay. Yeah, he's on the cover, and I just realized it right now. So it goes, Wonder Woman, Hal Jordan, Flash, um, guy in trench coat. And I didn't know who the guy in the trench coat was. I thought, again, just generic kind of World War II uh, private eye cop somebody. And, of course, now that I'm looking at it, I realize it's John Jones in his human disguise. But that's a bit of a rip. I mean, how are you supposed to tell that looking at the cover? He's just another white guy with a hat on. (sighs) Okay, now I'm really frustrated. (laughs) So the Martian Manhunter stuff is great. I think that's actually some of the best stuff in here. That he just is here and he has to adjust to human life and his observations about what humanity is like from the, the point of view of the outsider and his struggle to get back home eventually was really one of the best parts of this. I, I enjoyed that a lot and I'm glad that he had such a big part, um, but you'd never know it from the outside of it. So two green guys, Green Lantern and John Jones. Um, the flash stuff is good too. I, I like that. Um, other characters are just kind of cameos, Green Arrow, Batman and Robin, uh, Aquaman pops in there for a little bit. Um, it, you know, it's it's cool, but there's an awful lot of superheroes to handle at one time. And in that way, it feels a bit like Kingdom Come, although I think Kingdom Come had a little more characterization of some of the secondary and tertiary characters. Or maybe I'm just projecting that because I read the, the novelization that it was built on, you know, off, built off of. So... Um, there's also some characters in here who I didn't know who the hell they were, and, um, I guess that was okay, or maybe it wasn't okay, um, but there's a lot of story. Now I'm getting my thoughts together. This is my problem. In the book, in the first book, there's a lot of storylines that don't always intersect, and when they do intersect, they don't really mean much to each other. So there seem to be a lot of isolated incidents that never really get tied together. And this annoys me because I want them all to tie together and I want them all to have significance. So I was, I was annoyed by that. And then, you know, everything mostly comes together at the end, but there's still a lot of stuff that was like, why was this in here? You know, okay, so we're learning a lesson about racism. Okay, I get it. But what does that have to do with the story? Those... Additional storylines don't serve to advance the plot, and I think that's what you need to do in a big story like this. So that's my my take on why I'm feeling annoyed at the first book, was just too much stuff going on, didn't all tie together, didn't help me move the story together, wasn't a lot of actual plot, it was more just setting the stage for the big thing that happens at the end. And, you know, given that it's a big story with alien stuff and giant monsters that are an island and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, double crossing government executives and, you know, you know, comic books, that's what comic books are about. Right. And Star Trek too. It's just that kind of stuff. So 
and, and you know what? The good guys win at the end. I bet you didn't know that, but they do. Um, and some people die, but you know, whatever. Superman doesn't die, and neither does Wonder Woman, and neither does Hal Jordan. So that was important. Um, now, here here's the thing, though. In my opinion, the best thing about this book comes in book one, and it's a little scene between Wonder Woman and Superman. So. Um, in, in the universe that New Frontier takes place in, um, the superheroes are like they were in the Golden Age in the service of the U.S. government to a certain extent. So in World War II, they're fighting the Nazis, and then after that, they're also fighting in places like French Indochina, which later became Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. That mess. So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens there, and um, this is the best part for me. Um, Wonder Woman goes there, and she's fighting, and she uh, Superman needs to find her. So he lands there, and he finds her in a building with a bunch of women. And I'm going to say they're Vietnamese, even though I don't know that's exactly where they are. They just call it French Indochina, and they don't say what part of it they're in. So he's there. And she, Wonder Woman is having a party with these women um, who are dressed in, uh, you know, communist-era um, Mao suits. And they're drinking and toasting, and you can see them all. Some of them are armed, and some of them are injured. And um, when Superman gets there, he's noticed on his way to this house that there's a lot of dead guys all over the place. And he says to Diana... What's going on here? What happened to those men by the river? You haven't reported in for over two weeks. Washington wants an explanation. She says, You can tell them I'm over here winning the hearts and minds of the disenfranchised. And then she tells the story of what happened. Oh, she, they're in Cambodia, sorry. I had been sent into Cambodia to retrieve a crash C-47. Um, so she's on her way back to Laos, and she's at this camp. She notices a camp. It was a rebel base in a territory that had belonged to the South last month, but what made my blood race was the tiger cages I saw in the paddy. Like a good soldier, I completed my mission, meaning she rescued the plane. That evening I returned to the camp. I didn't hurt them, the men, she means. I simply disarmed them. And then I opened the tiger cages. These women had been living like this for weeks, nothing more than animals, sexual cattle. They stood in silence, facing their tormentors. I had placed the weapons in the clearing. The choice was theirs. And the art for this is really amazing. So we see these women in the cage, and they're looking suitably, you know, horrible, suffering and everything. The scene where Wonder Woman is disarming the men is done in silhouette, and they're kind of flying all over the place. And then this one panel where the women who have been freed are facing their tormentors, as she says, is amazingly powerful. The way he's drawn their faces, some of them are stoic. Some of them look very upset. The ones where you can see their eyes, where they're kind of looking out, um, they look really pissed off. And their faces are all different. They're clearly Asian, but they don't look like one Asian woman drawn over and over and over again. Some are young, some are old. Some have different haircuts. And then you see the panel where they're picking up the guns, and then it cuts back to Superman, who says, These women did that, and you stood by and watched? Diana, how could you? She says, 
These women have reclaimed their home and their dignity. I have chosen to train them to survive the coming war. Surely you see the virtue in that. He says, you're supposed to set an example to allow cold-blooded murder and then to celebrate. Wonder Woman says, what, hand them a smile and a box of flags? Their families, their mates, their children were murdered before their eyes. This is civil war. I've given them their freedom and a chance for justice. The American way. And she points right at him when he says that. Then they argue about this for a little while. But I thought that was amazing. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I feel is missing from comic books. I thought about this a lot over the last couple of days. That little thing that Wonder Woman does, I think, is what superheroes are supposed to do. You know, I enjoy the Legion of the Superheroes, the Silver Age stuff, where they're fighting totally wacky, fucked up, out of this world, impossible supervillains and monsters and the Fatal Five and just all that stuff. It's crazy and I love it. I love that part of it. But I also like reality. And growing up reading Marvel comics in the the late 60s and the 70s, that was reality, right? Like Spider-Man was out stopping you know, the kingpin and real crime that was on the street. People who were robbing banks and hurting other people. And that's what the Avengers did. And that's what the X-Men did before it kind of turned into, let's just battle the big supervillains. And you would think, looking at superhero comics now, that there was no crime anymore. Because all they ever do is battle the supervillains and Lex Luthor and, you know, blah, 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 blah. What about real people who have real problems and real suffering? Isn't it the moral duty of the superheroes to try to relieve that suffering? Wonder Woman sees an instance by happenstance. She's not looking for it where women are being abused and she doesn't kill the guys. She just disarms them and lets the women do what they will. And I think that's incredibly daring and I think it's shocking And I'm really intrigued to see this little interplay between her and Superman because that's not the kind of thing Superman would do, right? But it is the kind of thing that Wonder Woman would do. And that's a really interesting difference in their characterizations. Why don't we see more of that? Why don't we see superheroes, dare I say this word, empowering victims? Or at least giving them the choice? And, you know, maybe the victims, when they are empowered and want to fight back. Maybe their choice isn't going to be the one that the superhero would have chosen, but maybe people need to have that kind of free will. And the job of the superhero is to even the odds. I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about, but in my mind, that's what I'd like to see more of is superheroes involved in real world situations where they are righting wrongs, but not in the tie everything up in a neat bow kind of way. Um, But in this way, which I think is far more complex and interesting. And, you know, I I know that there are more comics where the the villains are not super villains, right? It's like the Russian mafia or something like that. But that's still not the kind of thing that most people deal with on a daily basis. And, okay, so I'm white and I live in America and I'm sort of middle class and I have a very privileged life and I understand that. But wouldn't it be cool to see more stuff where the imbalance exists in other places in the world where somebody like Wonder Woman could come in and just for that one minute in that one community could make a difference in this way, not by solving people's problems for them, but by giving them the means to solve their own problems. I've, I've thought about, you know, like if I had wrote a superhero comic, what would I do? And, 
you know, if you've got superpowers, say you're Superman, wouldn't it make more sense to use your superpowers um, not to, I don't know, um, let, let's say that aliens aren't menacing the world today and Lex Luthor is being good today and Brainiac 5 is off doing something else. Wouldn't you, like, go to some area of the world where um, they don't have clean water and spend a day at super speed building clean water pumps for, you know, a, a thousand villages? <laughs> Wouldn't that make a lot of sense? Wouldn't that improve the world by an immeasurable amount, much more so than, you know, throwing a couple of bank robbers in jail if they're the kind of bank robbers that aren't shooting people with guns? Imagine how different the world could be if superheroes actually did that kind of stuff that improves people's lives on a permanent basis. You know, you give people clean water and that's a giant step towards them making a better life for themselves where they're not going to die from waterborne diseases and they'll be able to live a more normal life, you know? Why isn't Wonder Woman um, distributing condoms in Africa? Why, you know, like, real world stuff. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that your vision of what a better world should be? Is superheroes actually making the world a better place in those small, small ways? So if I ever had the time or the energy or the imagination or the talent to do a superhero comic, that's what my superheroes would be doing. They would make the world better in those ways. And, you know, maybe there would be big monster aliens once in a while who would come down and they'd have to defeat them. But for the most part, they would actually focus on making things better and teaching people how to to keep on making it better and not just waiting around for the heroes to solve all our problems for us. Is that crazy? I don't think it's crazy. I think that's really good. And further, I would say that that would be something anybody could read about. That's not... Um, and I'll put this in quotes, a male power fantasy. I just read that again today, and boy, did that piss me off when somebody was talking about comic books. Oh, male, typical male power fantasy. Well, no, it's not, okay? There's nothing male about it. It's a power fantasy, and everybody has them. But I think that the, the making the world better fantasy could be just about anyone, and you could do it in a glamorous way. It doesn't have to be all, you know, sweat and hard work, although that's part of it. So anyway, that's my little soapbox for this week. Um, I will say that um, while I was being sick, when I could actually get to the computer and read, I've been keeping up with When Fangirls Attack and the Comics Gaze link blog. And, you know, the world goes on and people are still ranting about comics, which I'm really happy about. I just saw some scans from, um, I believe it's it's JLA, and um, there's a, a scene where... Uh, Wonder Woman and Black Canary and somebody else are being imprisoned by Lex Luthor. And, oh, my God, it's the grossest, sexistest, misogynistic thing I've seen in a long time. You know, thanks for thanks for being so offensive. Thanks for not thinking at all about, um, you know, the women who are going to read it. And thanks also for having uh, an artist, um, Benes, do a real hack job on it because it's just awful. And, you know, I have to say, in reading through some of the links on both Comic Gaze and um, uh, When Fangirls Attack, I'm seeing a lot more blogging by men about how bad the art is, which is great. So recognizing that 
the the stupid sexist misogynistic way that women are drawn in comics is great but also recognizing that in most cases the art just fucking sucks is also even better and that it's coming from men is kind of the best thing of all i've i read today probably four or five different men saying the way these women are drawn is horrible it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't do anything for the comic book. It's completely gratuitous, and it makes me feel icky knowing that it's essentially porn um, and that it's somebody's wank material being packaged as a comic book. Why are you doing that to my comic books? And these are men who are saying it, not just the women. So maybe, maybe the tide there is turning amongst the male comic book fans. You know, and I know that for every enlightened guy who says something like that, there's some troll who is going, you know, ha ha ha, tits, ha ha. But it's great that there is more vocal opposition to things like that. I don't know what difference it's going to make, but it sure is nice to read it. It makes you feel good. So I think I'm going to wrap this up and say, um, go to Comic Relief in Berkeley. It is a wonderful store and I haven't been there in way too long so I need to go back and spend more money because obviously I don't spend enough money on comic books. Um, You should go and listen to some more wonderful music by the fabulous diva gingermayerson.com. I will mention again, I mentioned this on the blog, that um, Ginger got it together to edit a book of smut in which I have a delightful fluffy little story. Um, I put up the cover on this blog, on the I Read Comics blog, and I read through all the other stories, and I think it's a really nice book. Um, it's not available for purchase yet because, believe it or not, we're still doing some of the proofreads and still finding mistakes, which I just can't believe. But it'll be available soon, and um, it's lovely, and you should buy one and then buy some as presents, too. It's full of lovely gay smut. So that's a good thing. Um, coming up in the next couple of shows, um, Logan and I are going to talk about Perry Moore's Hero, which we both read. And um, generally, I will say I really liked it. I thought it was good. And I know he's writing some sequels now. So that's coming up soon. And then um, on the next episode, I think I just started, well, I picked up Batman Dark Knight Strikes Again because um, wonderful David Arroyo gave it to me. And I read it through in about 15 minutes. I need to go back and read it again more deeply, but my first impression is, what a piece of shit. And I liked Dark Knight Returns so much, and this is just so shitty, I can't even believe it. Um, so I am guess I guess I'll make myself read it so that I can do uh, a, a funny and <laughs> in-depth look at just how bad Frank Miller can be. But yes, I thought it was extremely sucky. Um, Logan also mentioned to me that he went to see uh, Transformers in IMAX because apparently they were showing it in IMAX at a couple theaters and he loved it and just got so excited. And it's also out on DVD. Also, I have the um, DVD of the Superman Doomsday thing, which was very kindly sent to me by those people. But because I was sick, I didn't have a chance to watch it. But I'm going to watch it. Logan already watched it. And we'll talk about that, too. See, there's all this stuff I just haven't had time to get to. Sometimes, I don't know, I need to hire someone to live parts of my life for me or something. So um, that'll be it for now. I'm going to play a, <laughs> a little clip at the end here that I taped from um, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends. 
which has continued to be really good. And this was an episode where they were having a battle of the bands, and Blue did this really funny introduction to his act, which was very Spinal tapish. and then um, I'll play the goofy song that they ended up doing at the end. But the thing I loved about it is that he managed to combine every rock and roll cliche, including Alice Cooper makeup. And typical of the character of Blue... Um, he had all this great prep and stage show and everything and then kind of neglected to write a song so he couldn't really perform after all. But uh, yes, Foster's continues to be really, really good. So I will play that little song for you and then next time I'll be back with a longer show. Since the dawn of time, mankind has wanted to rock. The gods gave them the power But none could live up to the challenge. None but one. Someone so powerful, so potent, it can only be described as the Blue Sabbath Experience Mystery. Get to write a song? No! Uh, 